Just Go With It is a podcast hosted by two millennials who swear. And also, it's about horror films, so listener discretion is advised. We will put specific content warnings in the show notes. Boo. <laughs> Where are we today, Nikki? Where are we today, Kate? We're at a haunted hotel. <laughs> We're at a haunted hotel. <laughs> we're specifically, can we say where we are? Sure. Yeah, we're at the Hotel Lafayette. Yes. In uh, Marietta? Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, so we're there. I'm looking at the Ohio River right now. She's lying. Well, okay, you're not lying. How but our blinds are down. Yeah, but so I can like... see through them. Yeah, okay. Point is, we're at a haunted hotel. Yeah. <laughs> We can see the river. Kate's not lying. I forgot the clamp to hold my mic, so I'm holding it with my bare little hands. <laughs> we tried so many things, so many including things. putting the stand in a Boda box. Yeah, the, the box of wine didn't hold my mic like it should have. No, but it is holding our uh, mixer, so that's good. It is. Yeah. So we're good. So if the sound is weird or things are weird, it's because we're in a hotel mm-hmm. and our setup is interesting. I did also spill champagne onto all of the plugs onto right before the we started. protector. <laughs> It's hard. Yes. And now I'm drinking, we are drinking, we are drinking. champagne, because yeah. what is it? It's our 50th episode. Hell yeah, baby. Hell yeah. Kate has an amazing mug that just says, dad. <laughs> and I have a Barbie thermos uh-huh. from who knows when. One of the Probably like walls. the 80s. <laughs> yeah. Yep. And it's great. I've washed it. Don't worry. Mm-hmm. Can taste the 80s. It's good. <laughs> it's the nostalgia that gives it that extra zing. The 80s zing. Yeah. We did get woken up by a ghost this morning. I swear it's either a ghost or somebody's fucking with their radiator. Yeah. But this morning, Kate and I were sound asleep (laughs) after a lot of wine last night. (laughs) And um, the radiator on the wall, someone was just knocking. It was like, don't, 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 don't. It was like pipes rattling. It was so loud. So loud. And the radiators aren't even in use. Like, they're not on. I don't think they use those. Um, my, my theory is that it was either one, a ghost mm-hmm. or two, somebody like tried to turn it on in a different room and it fucked with ours. I don't know. Yeah. But it was so loud. <laughs> and Nikki was closer <laughs> to the radiator and I had my eye mask on. I'm like, Nikki, what? Why? I just thought I was banging on it to wake her up. Like, good morning. <laughs> I can picture you like staring me down, banging on it. And I was what like, would I do this? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, yeah, no, I would though. Something stupid like that. Yeah. yeah but. We are in a haunted hotel uh-huh, because uh-huh. for the 50th episode, we're talking about actually my favorite horror movie, mm-hmm. The Shining. The Shining. The Shining. Stop. <laughs> I will <I'm>, not. <laughs> I'm so excited. Um, I was pretty feral when we did Gremlins. Yeah. Because yeah. that is also one of my favorite horror movies. Yeah. This one's my favorite one because I think it was one of the first ones I ever really saw. Yeah. And two, it was the first movie I ever ran by myself on 35 millimeter. Dope. So, yeah. It's special. Um, but I still think that Stanley Kubrick is an absolute asshat, just to be clear. Yeah, we're we'll going to spend a fair it. amount of nerd corner talking about that. Good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, but does that mean you're ready some, for some facts? I'm so ready for facts. Okay. Good. <laughs> good so <clears throat> the shining it's based on the 1977 seven, seven, i could not get oh, that no. out Hold on. I think I just <laughs> it's based on the 1977 novel uh-huh. by stephen king yep sure is Woo! 
It's directed by Stanley Kubrick. He also did 2001 Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, Full Metal Jacket, and Eyes Wide Shut. Oh. He was one of the first directors to make use of the Steadicam. Mm-hmm. So. Woo! Um, it was co-written by Stanley Kubrick and Diane Johnson. Diane Johnson, I don't think she wrote other movies. It looks like she just hmm. did books, which I will say them, and hopefully I'm pronouncing them correctly. Uh, we have Lulu and Marrakesh. I think that's how it's said. La Faire. Les Mariage mm-hmm. and Les Divorce. <laughs> Les Divorce. Les Divorce. I don't know. Don't know them. Apparently, one was made into a movie, though. Oh. But I, it was Les Divorce. was made into a movie, I think. Um, but I have no idea. I Intriguing. Don't know. I've never heard of it, but go for her. Go for um, her. Go for her. <laughs> uh, cinematography was John Alcott, who is known for working with Stanley Kubrick. For being related to Louisa May Alcott. Got it. Yes. <laughs> uh, so we also did 2001 Space Odyssey, Clockwork Orange, and Barry Lyndon. Oh. So, and then the music was Wendy Carlos and Rachel Elkind, or Elkind, I'm not sure. But um, I did this fact before I did the second one, and then I was like, no, that's funny. So I said, Wendy Carlos is known for electronic music, and Rachel Elkind is produced the work of Wendy Carlos. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it seems like they like work together. Um, very cool. Dope. Uh, but I did think it was interesting that it was electronic music that she was known for because yeah. this one, it's not really electronic music, but it's very uh, like it's, sound effects. I was about to say, it's a know? lot of sound. Like heartbeats yeah. and like thumps and like rhythmic sounds yeah. to create the music. Yeah. So that was interesting. Um, so the budget, 19 million. Oh, wowza. Yeah. That makes sense though. Do you know how much it made? Um, 400 million. $47.3 million. I'm really bad at this game, Nikki. <laughs> you got it like spot on last time though Once. for the Meg though, remember? Once. A few times. Um, so 47.3. Uh, so it was like successful. It wasn't like buck wild. Okay. I think it got its popularity after. Yeah, that it, makes like, sense. You know, I think it was rated 75th best horror film ever made on oh. a list of like 100 or something. It's on the all the top 100 it's lists. It's always on the yeah. top 100 lists. Um, which is good. I mean, I agree, but yeah. <laughs> um, okay, do you want some little facts now yes, about how please. it was made? So, like I said about the steady cam, the steady cam was used to shoot several scenes, which is how they got like the shot with Danny's bike. Um, like the scene where he's being dragged and it's following him and oh, everything. Yeah. Any of the shots that were like really low to the ground or like close to a person and stuff it was used so that way they didn't have to like tear down walls from the set mm. or like back into walls it was mm. just like compact and nice apparently so that's cool yeah super cool so that's how they got most of the shots that they needed um stephen king didn't want jack nicholson to play jack torrance uh because jack nicholson had just been in one flew over the cuckoo's nest oh boy and he said that people would assume he was an unstable individual based off of that movie and already assume that coming into this movie. Yeah. Which the whole point of the movie is it's supposed to be like a caring, kind person descending into like madness. Yeah. So he was worried that people would see him and just be like, uh-uh, he's already unwell. I mean, I saw his eyebrows and that's all I needed to right? know. <laughs> so he was not a fan. Did not like the casting. He mm-hmm. wanted, um, I can't remember now. He had like a few other people in mind. Um, I think Robert De Niro was also one of the people that was possibly in talks. But guess who else that really surprised me? I don't know. Robin Williams. Oh. Yeah. That would be a different type of heartbreak. Oh, yes. Like, oh, shit. Because it was such a 
kind and like yeah. sweet person yeah. like i can see that sort of yeah um, it'd be yeah. interesting be super interesting but apparently jack nicholson was uh stanley kubrick's first pick okay he was like yeah. i want that guy so yeah whatever i want the guy with the wild eyes please <sighs> please <laughs> um and i think i already told you this but danny the little boy did not know that this was a horror film um, and he was also picked specifically because Stanley Kubrick wanted a child actor who had an accent or way of speaking that was in between, like, um, uh, Shelley Duvall and Jack Nicholson and, like, their characters. Yeah. And they landed on him. Uh, but, okay. yeah, he did not know this was a horror film when filming. Uh, Stanley Kubrick specifically had, like, a special way of just keeping him hidden from all of the, like, horror of it. Mm-hmm. So he thought it was just a drama. Oh, my God. So, like... He has, he doesn't see any of the goat, which is why, like, you never see them in the same thing, yeah. really, except for, like, the little girls in the room, but they're not dead. You only ever see him looking at them when they're, like, alive or whatever, yeah. and they would just be like, look scared. So he thought it was just a trauma until he was older, obviously. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, but yeah, he didn't know. Wow. <laughs> and I think that's so funny. Um, we also, I mean, you already know this, you talked about this, but the baseball scene was filmed 127 times. <sighs> um... We'll talk about it more, I'm assuming, when you talk about it. But Stanley Kubrick's an asshole. Stanley Kubrick treated his cast just horrendously. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. He treated Shelley Duvall the worst. Yeah. But he also, like, Jack Nicholson hated him, too. Yeah. Um, so we'll get into it, like, more yeah. specifically. But he is one of those people that people said, like, he will not, like, print a take until he's done it 35 times. Yeah. So every scene is yeah. done dozens of times. They said that, like, it would just be hours and hours and hours of the same scene. They said Long that there were days. also just rewrites constantly. Like, he would write a script, like, a page or whatever, give it to them. And then apparently Jack Nicholson would just throw them away the minute he was given, like, to him. Because he would be like, you're just going to rewrite this. And he would just throw it in the garbage. <laughs> so Jack Nicholson was a little done with this. But Wendy, yeah. unfortunately, Shelley Duvall, had it the worst. Um, yeah. She was purposefully, like, humiliated in front of everybody. I have and details on that. Good. Yeah. yeah. Not good. But, yeah. like, I would like to hear the story. But, yeah, she was treated like hot garbage. Yeah. So when she's on the stairs in the baseball scene, genuine fear because she hated it. Hated being there so much. She was yeah. so sick. She, she started, was ill. like, losing hair. Mm-hmm. She wasn't sleeping. She was weeping <sighs> when she wasn't on set because you have to put yourself into such an emotional state mm-hmm. to, like, do that. And it's, like, when your body is going through, like, traumatic things, like, you can't really distinguish all the time, like, oh, I'm crying, I'm sobbing, I'm screaming. Right. And your body's like, oh, I guess we're panicking. (laughs) Right. So she had a rough go. Yeah. And that sucks. Um, But here's some facts about filming. So uh, the Timberland Lodge in Oregon was actually the exterior for the Overlook. Ooh. So it's not actually, um, oh, gosh, I can't remember the actual name of the one that's in Colorado. It's not called Overlook, yeah. but it's there's like the one that you used. Um, I don't think they actually ever used any interior shots. It's all made on a stage. Huh. So the whole set, almost the entire set was actually just um, studio sound stages. It would have to be because of the way they rearranged things. Yeah. And it was um, also massive. It was apparently one of the biggest they had ever created in that Damn. studio. Um so uh, uh, Harlan, St. Mary Lake, and then Wild Goose Island in Glacier National Park, Montana, are used for the aerial shots. Ooh. And so like them driving in and everything. Yeah. There was like a whole second crew that filmed all of the exterior stuff. And then they were doing all of the other ones on the set. Um, during production, Kubrick screened David Lynch's eraser head to the cast and crew to convey the mood that he wanted to achieve. Yep. 
I've never that. seen a razor head actually. Nor I. But, but I'm, I'm interested like, okay. to be like, okay, yeah. <laughs> um, and then my favorite fact is about how much um how much it was to make the snow and stuff oh, for the end scene. Specifically, this is for the scene like within the hedge maze yes. and like everything like that for that last moment. It was nine hundred thousand kilograms or ninety metric tons of fake uh styro like styrofoam and salt was was like used to create oh the snow God. that's how much it weighed that's how much there was holy shit so it was nine hundred thousand kilograms nine hundred thousand which is nine hundred tons ninety metric tons ninety yeah. metric tons mm-hmm. okay nine hundred tons t-o-n-n-e-s oh, okay okay, okay, okay. ninety okay. metric tons shit's hard <laughs> a lot <laughs> Twas a lot of snow okay so those are my fun facts. That's amazing. I know. I was like, some some fun facts about The Shining. Um, and my, my little one sentence. Oh, God. A family goes to a hotel and they find some ghosts and then the dad just never leaves. Well, yeah, that's... I yeah, mean, right? You didn't spoil anything. This is a spoiler-free episode of The Shining. It's not... <laughs> <laughs> it's not. I couldn't the dad even never that leaves, but I don't say why. Maybe yeah. he just really likes it there. He loved it. He needed he fresh air. Loves the He hotel. was like nearly consumptive. He was like, I need the air in Colorado. <laughs> He's like, I gotta be here. Yeah. All right. Well, I no spoilers. Just kidding. It's gonna be all spoilers. All spoilers all the time. What did the, what was? Is it Rotten Tomatoes? Yes. What do they say? Jack Torrance becomes winter caretaker at the isolated Overlook Hotel in Colorado, hoping to cure his writer's block. He settles in along with his wife, Wendy, and his son, Danny, who is plagued by psychic premonitions. As Jack's writing goes nowhere and Danny's visions become more disturbing, Jack discovers the hotel's dark secrets and begins to unravel into a homicidal maniac hellbent on terrorizing his family. That's more spoilery than me! Yeah, well, I don't think it's really a spoiler that he becomes hellbent on terrorizing people when you look at his eyebrows. Yeah, honestly, he is he's a wild-looking man. <laughs> I I think I told you this last night where I had like a little mini crisis because I can't tell sometimes if I'm supposed to be attracted to the male lead. (laughs) And so I was watching this and I was like, is Jack Nicholson supposed to be attractive? And I was like, I don't, am I just broken? (laughs) To be clear, I do not find him attractive in the least. And I was watching this and I was afraid I was supposed to find him attractive. That means that I have to make a confession. You find him attractive? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Before he goes all wild. Um. I don't know why. His smile is too smarmy. Yeah, I don't know why. Yeah. I hate him. Like, yeah. in the movie, he's an asshole from the very beginning. Yeah. Um, it's not his personality at all that I'm, like, attracted to. Just for some reason. I was just like, he's kind of cute. I don't know. I have bad taste in men. Maybe I, if I could see him smiling warmly. Yeah, an and not, like, in the movie. horribly. <laughs> <laughs> no Kubrick stare, please. <laughs> no, please. God, that Kubrick stare. Oh, the Care Bear stare. Sure. Care Bear stare. Oh God. Well, those are my owns. Okay. Those are good. I'm ready. I'm so excited <laughs> for Nerd Corner. Okay. So we talked about this a little bit beforehand. Mm-hmm. I realized that like I wanted to see how many pages all of the Nerd Corners combined <laughs> were because I write them. And uh, I haven't finished compiling them all yet. I've compiled the first 25. Yeah. It's like 62 pages so far. It's going to be over 100. Oh, yeah, yeah, because the first, like, ten episodes, I had much shorter nerd corners. Right. And then I was like, yeah, I can, like, go off. We can go longer. (laughs) We can go off. Uh, 
So this one is one of the longer ones because I was I'm trying excited. to fit like a hundred years of Hollywood history into it. And oh, you'll I'm see sure. why. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited. As we know, this is my favorite. If you go to our website, we have our two favorite like horror movies. Mm-hmm. Listen, this one's my favorite. I think because of the cinematography. Yeah. Even though I'm well aware that people who worked on it were jerks. Not everybody. Not everybody, but yeah. But a lot of people. So I'm very excited to hear about this. Yes. And okay. You and I talked a bit before, like the weekend before we came here. Yeah. Because I was like, okay, I have a couple different ideas. Mm-hmm. Tell me which one you're more interested in. And we both basically agreed that it was important to talk about uh, what we're going to talk about. Yeah. You know, it's a real bummer. It's a bummer, but yeah. So this week we're digging into auteur apologism. Yeah. So, i.e. how usually white male directors get away with abusing their actors. Always. We've mm-hmm. talked about it a little bit in some movies, yeah. like Blair Witch, too. Like, that yeah. was one where the actors really just, I think it was too much. Yeah. Um, but this one especially, because, like, I've loved this movie for so long. I know you're getting into it. I'm sorry. But I just want to, like, say yeah. that, like, I love this movie and it's a beautiful movie. But I hate that, like, I just, I hate it. I hate yeah. how people were treated in this. And it's not just this movie. Like, he was an asshole yeah. to, like, most of his actors yeah. in every movie he did. And I'm just like, dang, it sucks because it is one of the best horror movies I've ever seen and I love it with all my heart. But yeah. fuck, I hate that guy. <laughs> yeah, I'll get into it like in more I'm depth. A, I'm excited to, yeah. Basically, my perspective on it is like you can love The Shining. It's just when you talk about The Shining, you also have to say like we're not going to idolize Kubrick. No. And we're also going to talk about the harm that he caused. Absolutely. And his artistic genius doesn't Does not excuse anything. it whatsoever. Yeah, so. I don't care how much I love this movie. It doesn't, yeah. make, him an, no. it doesn't make him not an asshole because he is. Yes. Jesus. So, historical context is pretty important when mm-hmm. looking at power dynamics. So we're going to take a leisurely and definitely not rage-inducing stroll through time in Hollywood. Definitely. Well, it's going like, to be totally chill, I think. It's going to be really, like, soothing. Oh, yeah. yeah. We'll also examine the rise of the auteur and then look at Shelley Duvall's experience during and after acting in The Shining. Mm-hmm. So, there was a Guardian article I found on the systemic abuse in Hollywood over the past century, and I think it's a decent primer. Okay. So I used it for a significant portion of this. Good. So let's take it back to 1910. Oh, what a year. So good. (laughs) The tens. Any ghosts? Any ghosts from the 1910s? No. None. We have an EMF reader between us. Oh, yeah. We have an EMF, by the way, in case anyone knows. We were like, oh, if the ghosts are going to show up. So far, nothing. Nothing. We put it next to our haunted doll, Angie. Also, not much, but she's a quiet, shy lady. She's shy, yeah. So. Yeah. So, for a while, television and film weren't, like, anchored in California. Mm -hmm. According to the article, quote, there were no stars and studios could be democratic startup outfits where cast and crew mucked in together. Mm -hmm. The familiar faces that appeared on Nickelodeon screens were known only by their studio's brand, the Vitograph Girl, the Biograph Girl. But in 1910, Carl Lamel had, I don't know how to say it, it's L-A-E-M-M-L-E. That's probably what I I would have also said. I'm like... William Hale. I'm Hale. Yeah, Bjorn. Bjorn. Aye, aye, eyes. Aye, eyes. This is still a direct quote, even with the butchering of his last name. Carl Lamel, head of the independent moving picture studio, who later founded Universal Pictures, mm-hmm. wanted a real star and decided he had to kill one first. Now, to be clear, he does not physically murder an actress. Oh. I just want to, like, get that out of the way I was about to be first. like... Yeah. Oh, so he just, like, murdered him. <laughs> he did decide that he could write her history. So, oh, Florence Lawrence, which I think is really <laughs> Sorry, fun Sorry, I did not mean to laugh like a little bully. <laughs> also known as Flo, okay. and I'm going to call her Flo, mm-hmm. uh, was previously just, previously just called the Biograph Girl because that was the production company for which she did the bulk of her work. Okay. And I did not know this, but film credits weren't always a thing. 
And mm-hmm. in the early days, there would be film title, then bam, action. No list of actors. So you never knew who was in the films right. because you weren't selling the films based on the people. Yeah. You could just know like, oh, the Biograph Girl. Like she's been in a lot of Biograph she, films. Yeah, so that's why you call her that. Okay, interesting. But no one knew her name. So strange. Yeah. So Lamo wanted to shake things up and leverage the renown of actors. My understanding of it is like if they could be known for their name and not the production company, then the director and the studio that had the actor in the movie could use that name to get butts in seats. Right. So it gives the directors more power. Okay. Um, so instead of people just knowing, oh, the cutie in the biograph films, mm-hmm. they could advertise a movie with Flo Lawrence and sell more tickets purely based on star power. Right. To make this happen, uh, this is... This is the general consensus on the course of events, but it's not actually, like, confirmed that he's the one that planted Mm -hmm. the story, but a lot of people think he did. So, anyway, he planted a fake story in the newspapers. Flo had died tragically in a streetcar accident. (laughs) Yeah. What? Some people say that it was, like, um, the local theater was going to be showing a film with Flo in it, Mm -hmm. and they wanted to generate buzz by doing it. So it's not, like, confirmed who planted that article. Right. But someone did plant an article about her dying in a streetcar accident. Oh, my God. did not. So regardless of the source of the rumor of her untimely death, the public mourned the loss of their favorite biograph girl. Lamel then popped advertisements in the papers with Flo's name saying, We Now a Lie, and announcing her starring role in an upcoming film. She wasn't the first film star to, like, I'm going to try this sentence again. <laughs> she wasn't the first named film star. Most people say that goes to French actor Max Linder, but mm-hmm. she is generally seen as the first film star that helped launch the star system. Okay. So, yeah. Like, yeah. Like so, the first person who was, like, a star to get butts in seats kind of thing. Like, yes. whose name was used to. Yeah. Okay. So, the, like, case with Max Linder, it's... Basically, from what I read, it's that Flo Lawrence was, like, everyone called her the first, the first, the first. And then someone did, like, a read through newspapers. And it's like, actually, I think Max Linder was the first. Okay. So it's, she is known as the first, even if she might not have been exactly the first. Okay. Interesting. But they did it very intentionally to actually name her and Mm -hmm. then try to sell tickets based on her notoriety. Yes. Okay, cool. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So, according to Andrew Shale, senior lecturer in film at Newcastle University, mm-hmm. quote, it's difficult to overemphasize how adverse filmmaking companies were to launching a star system. Publicity for an employee puts power in the hands of someone who's supposed to have sold their labor, which is a bit like handing them back some of their wages. Oh. There was a really quick about face, though. <laughs> yeah. So, by 1912, mm-hmm. like, within three years, yeah. uh, most studios had switched to advertising based on their stars instead of... Like, the old, like, biographical right. or whatever. Shell said, quote, A star system only emerged because new risks arose that made having a star system a bit less risky economically than not having one. Okay. So it was mostly the economics kind of forced their hands. Another barge! <gasps> Hello, barge! By the way, uh, because our room looks out at the river, yeah. a barge goes by, like, every day. And yeah. for some reason, we always go, Hi, barge! Hi, barge, <laughs> barge, buddy! I've never seen a barge. So when this first happened, I ran to the window... <laughs> I tried, tried to send a video to a friend and I went, oh my God, look. And I just slammed my phone against the window and went, a barge. <laughs> so hi, barge. Hi, barge. Angie's looking out the window right now. Yeah. We'll, we'll post a photo of Angie. She's, she's hanging it. out. She's having a blast. She loves it here. Ugh. Yeah. So okay. what was the impact of this star system? Yeah. Well, among other things, it shifted the seat of production to Hollywood mm-hmm. and led droves of young women moving to California to pursue acting. Because if all of the work is concentrated in this one area, a ton of people are like, I'm going to go make it. I'm going to move to California. I'm going to move to LA. I'm going to move to Hollywood. Like that shit. 
So there was a glut of silver screen hopefuls for a limited number of roles. And this glut and dearth, butt dirt. <laughs> Every time you say it, I'm like, butt dirt. I didn't even say dearth this time. It doesn't matter. Uh, look at me. <laughs> I'm made for a butt dirt. I hated that. I don't, don't anyone take that out of context. <laughs> Next shirt. I'm, I am not made for butt dirt. Okay, good to continue. <laughs> a glut. There was indeed a glut mm-hmm. of silver screen hopefuls, limited number of roles, and this essentially guaranteed that the power would not be in the hands of the actresses. Right. But the producers and the directors have all of these options. They have their pick. And there aren't any structural or fiscal barriers that would stop them from abusing actors. So there wasn't anything set in place to protect them. Mm -hmm. The longevity of shitty jokes about the casting couch isn't uh, because it's ridiculously false, but because it's depressingly true. Yeah, exactly. It was just a fact and still is. Still is. And I'm not going to go into the specific stories from the 20s. It's bleak as shit. Right. Right. Hopeful actors were sexually abused, lied to, manipulated, controlled. It was like the known secret. And I'm not saying it in the past tense because it magically ended years ago. It's still a problem. Oh, absolutely. It's just like this is the historical context. Right. So during this time, it was common practice to contract actors for years at a time and change their identity and appearance to fit a public image. Right. With electrolysis, hair dye, and a name change, Margarita Cancino became Rita Hayworth. Oh, wow. Yep. Uh, Joan Crawford's name was chosen by a public vote and she didn't even like it. She said what? it right at her crawfish. Her original name was Lucille Lucere, and one of the uppers, uh, upper dudes, whatever, yeah. in uh, a production company was like, it sounds like sewer, so it had to go. Oh, my God. Yeah. Their contracts were restrictive, and their public personas were carefully crafted and maintained by studios that held those contracts. An absolute nightmare. Yeah. In the 50s, there was a shift from... The studio system to mm-hmm. a focus on directors and a term is coined in French film theory. And that starts to take shape in the U.S. as well. Okay. And uh, Andre Bazin, mm. I, d- I did not look up how to say it. Andre Bazin. I like, <laughs> I like that you said it like beautifully and you're like, oh, I didn't look it up. I don't know and I'm if over I'm here right, going, what okay, I'm but dirt. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, my God. <laughs> I just don't know if I said it right. So. <laughs> well, it sounded nice. Thank you. Mm-hmm. A.B. coined the term auteur theory. Yes. Uh, auteur is French for author. Okay. Um, or it could be translated that way. So in 1954, mm-hmm. in analysis of films from Europe and Asia, he basically postulated that the director should be seen as the author of a mm-hmm. work. And a more recent examination sets out three core tenets of like how an auteur, yeah. like what requirements they must fulfill to be considered one. Okay. So they have to have technical competence, Mm -hmm. distinguishable personality within their work, and interior meeting. So put simply, the director needs to have actual technical skill, Mm -hmm. a distinctive creative through line for their work, one that is easily distinguishable and recognizable. Like, you watch it and you're like, oh, I can tell that that camera movement is so Kubrick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a purpose for their Mm -hmm. artistic choices. So they have to be, like, explaining something about the human condition or society, not just, like, swirling around a camera with flashing lights. Right. Hitchcock, I can't say his name, don't want to. Hitchcock! (laughs) I think some of his actors called him Hitch, and I was like, that's easier, and less funny. Oh, the classic movie, Hitch, yeah. Yeah, Will Smith, yeah. (laughs) Uh, Hitchcock is widely considered an auteur. Uh, He had creative, like, to be an auteur, you have to have such a level of creative control over a variety of aspects that basically... The work is, in, like, you are not to be separated from the work. Even if you right. might not have written the script, you are the author of the film. Right. So, 
Uh, Hitchcock had such creative control over those films from casting, camera placement, editing, soundtracks, that he is viewed as the author of his films. Which is exactly what Stanley Kubrick does, yeah. Yep. <laughs> Doesn't let anybody else do anything. Nope. So the power shifted from production companies to directors. The most valued and lauded directors were idolized for their creative control over films. Mm -hmm. But the power imbalance between actors and their employees didn't change when the power moved from production companies to directors. Okay. Directors just started getting more acclaim for their vision and their ownership of their work. Right. Certain directors. Mm -hmm. So instead, when faced with situations where directors unquestionably abused their actors, we saw auteur apologism take root. So what does that term mean? Well, I have a direct quote from James Fenwick from the New Review of Film and Television Studies for you. Mm-hmm. This is a long one. So, quote, film history has been written and understood from the perspective of powerful men, which has often led to the exoneration of their behavior and abuses, often to the refrain of, it was different back then, or to excuse it, or to excusing it by framing these powerful men as geniuses, artists, and auteurs, what Steph- Stefania Margitu calls auteur apologism. Separating the art from the artist is a standard practice embedded in the cultural fields, from painting to literature to film and television, mm-hmm. and it is often required when overlooking the amoral or criminal acts of the genius artist. Those that claim historical preconditions make these icons merely products of their time mm-hmm. often excuse these behaviors. From Paul, I don't know him, uh, Paul Gauguin? I don't know him. <laughs> I don't either. Uh, his rape of the subjects he portrayed to yeah. Alfred Hitchcock's abusive actress Tippi Hedren. That's one of the names I looked up earlier. <laughs> I know. You looked it up and like you hit the button and I went, Tippy, you look it up, Tippy Hedron? I didn't know if it was Hedron. <laughs> He's such a Large fucking Hadron math ass name. What shape is a Tippy Hedron? <laughs> How many sides does a Tippy Hedron have? <laughs> More than you think. More than you think. Less than you hope. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Oh. So for anyone that was, like me, unfamiliar not only with how to pronounce Tippi Hedren, but also with the treatment, mistreatment, right. and abuse of her, a brief overview. Yes. While she was acting in Marnie, mm-hmm. Hitchcock was obsessively watching her, making obviously inappropriate sexual advances, <sighs> and eventually cornered her in his office where he came on to her and she rejected him. He said he would ruin her career and effectively did. Uh, he held her contract oh because God. that's how it fucking worked, right. is that they would have you contracted for years, and he wouldn't let her out of it. <sighs> So he wouldn't offer her, like, good roles that he had available, and she couldn't get work from other directors because they had to go through him. Because he was on, yeah, she was on contract. Yep. Jeez. And according to her memoir, when she was in The Birds, originally they were supposed to be mechanical birds. Yep. This I remember, and I was like, well, pissed. I didn't know. Oh, God. So originally they were supposed to be mechanical birds for Mm -hmm. that scene where she's attacked. Right. However, on the day they were set to begin filming, one of her friends came in and was like, I... mechanical words aren't working we're gonna have to use live ones and it was like the day of oh she had my such god little notice and like the way that she describes it in her memoir like i read an excerpt yeah it's bleak <laughs> because it's like her friend is coming in and he doesn't want to tell her he's so upset he can't believe he's doing this and he's like we're gonna use live ones let's go and like <sighs> he feels awful and you get the idea from at least that section that he had no control over it, and it was something that Hitchcock chose. I was going to say, I'm like, yeah. if it's Hitchcock, obviously nobody had any control. He was doing everything, so he's yeah. an auteur. Mm-hmm. So she was literally pelted with live birds, and it took five Ew. days to get the shot that Hitchcock wanted. Five days? Mm-hmm. And on the final day, the birds were actually tied to her, and <gasps> they 
were pecking at her. Oh my and god! One of them pecked like too close to her eye, and she was like, "Fuck this shit, I'm done." And so she was like, "Nope, I'm done, I'm done." And so Hitchcock yelled, "Cut!" And she just like dissolved into tears. She just sobbed. And minutes later, she looks up and realizes she's alone on the stage. Everyone just left. Oh my god! Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely ridiculous. I knew it was bad. Yeah. I did not realize how bad. Yeah. Uh, so her doctor ordered a week of rest to recover from the week of being attacked by literal birds. Can you just, and I Hitch didn't want to allow it, but was ultimately forced to. This is all according to her memoir, which I believe survivors. Oh, I, so 100%. Like, <laughs> yeah. Would not, yeah, not surprise me at all. No. And <sighs> she basically, like, one of the quotes is that she was told by some of the crew that it was, like, heartbreaking and horrific to watch because... They had no control. No one could stop it except for Hitch. Literally, I'm and sure. he yeah. was the only person with the power to do something and about it. too. And she was being literally physically attacked. Yeah. I hate this man. And she made a comment like, you know, I trust our live train, like our animal trainer 100%. Right. But you cannot, like even the best trainer can't predict the behavior of animals, especially when they're stressed because they were in a giant cage. I'm going to say, I'm like, especially like, back then, I think that, like, animals had some more lax, like, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, guidelines mm-hmm. and how would do stuff on set. Like, I can only imagine that these birds were probably freaking out. Yeah, she's in her, uh, I haven't seen the birds, so I don't know. Yeah. But she said that there were, like, ravens and uh-huh. pigeons and, like, maybe doves. I don't remember the last one, but I was like, ravens are huge like they actually can take your eye out oh they're very big i would assume that it was crows not ravens but i haven't seen it so i don't know if that's accurate and most people get crows and ravens confused and that's okay that's acceptable but anyway not to derail but today we were walking calmly (laughs) and kate just goes hold on and just looks directly into the air for so long and i went what and she goes i don't know what kind of bird that is but i think it's and then just talked so long about what kind of bird this thing was and i went "Uh uh-huh uh-huh and then she went let's go <laughs> like kept walking <laughs> as if you didn't just stop in the middle of the sidewalk <laughs> to be like what kind of bird is that <laughs> i don't see what's weird <laughs> it cracked me up because you were it flew over you and you were like oh, no I, I caught that like, <laughs> you looked at it like it was trying to pull a fast yeah, one on you you, thought you, you were like you me. thought i wasn't gonna see <laughs> She did that on the way here, too. We were driving. She just pointed with crow. <laughs> I scared you shitless. Scared the shit out of me. I thought we were being, like, hit by something. And all she's just like, there's a crow. <laughs> I kept whispering it because I didn't want you to get, like, wild. I kept going, there's a crow. Because <laughs> every time I'd see one, I'd go, crow. <laughs> one flew by just a few minutes ago, and I went, crow. <laughs> I had to keep it calm. <laughs> You're like the bird hulk. <laughs> Make sure you're okay. (laughs) Mommy long arms, bird hulk. (laughs) Mommy long arms. You did that to yourself. I did. Oh, God. I'm just accepting it now. My friend who also has long arms got upset and said, no, I'm mommy long arms. And I'm like, do y'all really want to fight over this? She can have it. (laughs) Both of you can have it. That's fine. So just summarize where we are now. Please. I'm sorry. I think I did that. I think that's my fault. It's <laughs> so, everyone's fault. <laughs> so we've talked about the creation of the film star, mm-hmm. the power shift from production companies to directors, yeah. and auteurs and apologists for abusive auteurs. Yeah. So let's get to The Shining with Shelley Duvall. Yes. I want to start off, start off with some quotes. Um, I'm going to take that back. 
I want to start off with some quotes about her acting talent and general demeanor from fellow actors. Yes. From Sissy Spacek, uh, Duval was an extraordinary co-star. Quote, she was funny, kind, everybody adored her. Mm-hmm. She was always prepared, always in good humor, took her work really seriously. Lily Tomlin said, quote, what she was doing in Altman movies like Thieves was just transcendent. The way she played that so sweet and funny and heartbreaking, it just killed me. Angelica Houston explained how Duval rented a flat near the studio where she lived alone uh-huh. with a dog and two birds instead of living in London like everyone else pretty much did. Right. So she would have been around other people, but she would have been forced to take like a hellish commute every day. Yes, I knew that. And so Houston said Duval spent a year in an apartment alone because, quote, she was just terribly dedicated and didn't want to shortchange herself or anyone else by not giving over fully to her commitment. Yeah. Roger Ebert praised her performance in Three Women and said, there's an openness about her. As if somehow nothing has come between her open face and our eyes. No camera, dialogue, makeup, method of acting. And she is spontaneously being the character. Yeah. I wanted to start here for two reasons. One, because she was a talented actress. And after all the hell she went through on The Shining, she was nominated for a Razzie. And I'll never forgive them. They took it back. Yeah. And I don't care. Yeah. Too Uh, fucking late. (laughs) They gave out two Razzies. Or they nominated both Kubrick, like, for it and her. And in a recent article, they were like, we 100% take back what we said about Shelly. We do not take back anything that we said about well, I love that. Kubrick or The Shining. Good, because yeah. I'm like, don't. But yeah. I think Shelly Duvall is incredible. Yeah. And I think that her performance in this is great. I don't understand where this, like, Razzie is even coming from. I understand that, like, it's a little to some over the top. Yeah. But I'm like, so is the situation. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, that's the whole point. And also, I don't know. I won't get into it. Yeah. Because I just love her so much. Yeah. And I love this performance so much. Yep. The other reason I wanted to start with that is because when her acting is lauded in The Shining, people give credit to Kubrick for working that out of her. Like she Fuck couldn't have that. done it without him. And that's some bullshit. No. So let's that dig into sucks. it. <laughs> uh, as mentioned, she was pretty isolated just in like a physical way. Yeah. But where she stayed... Oh, sorry. I'm just realizing. So I don't know if it was right before The Shining Mm -hmm. or before one of her other films, but she was broken up with at the airport when she was on her way to fly to the filming location. I thought that was this one, but I'm not sure. Anyway, uh, as mentioned, she was isolated in a physical way, but also she was emotionally isolated by Kubrick. So as shown in his daughter's short documentary, uh, which is called The Making of the Shining, Mm -hmm. uh, Kubrick's daughter Vivian was 17 at the time and filmed like behind the scenes Mm -hmm. for like a 35-minute doc. And in some of the clips, you see Kubrick screaming at Duvall when she missed her cue, saying that she was, quote, wasting everyone's time. Fuck off. (laughs) He instructed the crew not to talk to Duvall or have sympathy for her. He would intentionally never compliment her work and only offer criticisms while at the same time complimenting Nicholson when he sat right next to her. They would shoot seven, nope, they would shoot six days a week, 16 hours a day. Some of the most challenging scenes were shot over 100 times. Yep. Two of the scenes in this movie were shot like 140 and 120 something times. I think it holds times. the record for the most times ever it does. shot. Yeah. yeah, that's what I thought. So interviews with Duvall over the years have been difficult to come by. She dropped off the map for, like, two decades. Uh, in the mid-90s, she basically disappeared from public life. Uh-huh. She did some, like, production work for, like, a children's thing. Yes. Uh, and I hope – did you find the article that she did, like, most recently? Good. Yeah. Okay. I read a lot of stuff. <laughs> Good. Um, there was – something that's really interesting about these articles is that you can really tell so much about, like – 
who's writing the article based yeah. on how they phrase things. Right. Yeah. And so the person that wrote the article that I liked the most, I think it was Hollywood Reporter, mm-hmm. is like when they did like the in-depth interview right. and they spend a lot of time on like her work and her friends and yeah. her life. Exactly. Instead of just like, you know, The Shining or whatever. But um, some of the articles were like, yeah, she did like a few wild years and produ- like she tried her hand at production. And when that didn't work out, she did this. And then the good articles, like she had like a beautiful career that was like poignant. And yeah, she shared like this thing that is a touchstone for some millennials. And like the way that they talk about her work is just so fucking different. God. Yeah. So I have all of the sources in right. my notes. Yeah. But um, it's I. <laughs> I used some articles just for facts. Right. And then I used, like, the good interview to be, like, this is the human side. This is, like, the caring side. Yeah. So in the mid-90s, like, after she did her producing stuff, Mm -hmm. she basically, like, disappeared from public life. Yes. Until 2016. Yeah. When she was on an episode of Dr. Phil that has been roundly criticized criticized and outright condemned as exploitative. Because it was. Mm -hmm. Uh, In the episode, she's obviously struggling with her mental health, as demonstrated through many statements about certain paranoias that she was suffering from. Right. When asked directly about Kubrick's methods back in the 80s, she said that he was unnecessarily cruel and demanding, but that she supposed it wouldn't be the movie it had if he hadn't done that. (sighs) So I'm not in Shelley's head. Like... I didn't experience that. Right. But it's not uncommon to take literal years to unpack abusive experiences. Right. Especially when the power imbalance is so weighted against you actively. Right. And it's like, I'm not speaking for Duval. I'm not saying, well, she was obviously so traumatized that she couldn't conceptualize it. Like, I'm not going to infantilize her that way. No. But I also don't want to be like, well, she said 40 years ago that it worked out, so it's okay in the end. No. Like, I'm just not going to do that for <laughs> right. her. Right. So uh, that's what so many articles do. When they cover the abuse of the actors at the hands of the director, they usually follow it up with, and then that actress won an award for their role, or the movie won X award. I and don't it's, care. <laughs> it's infuriating, because the award, first of all, just isn't as important as their well-being. No. And it doesn't justify the abuse. It's not like a cute little, don't worry, it all worked out palate cleanser. Yeah, like, just because this movie is successful, and, like, people love it, and it's a classic, it doesn't matter. No. And we can't use, like, the awards that it won or, like, its location in the canon to make us feel better about what happened. No. Because that type of resolution isn't actually, like, seeking or serving justice. It's just letting us sweep it under the rug. It's letting us pat ourselves on the back to say, like, well, at least something good came out of it. And, like, the TLDR of Nerd Corner is basically, like, we can't say that abuse was worth it for art. And Kubrick treating Duval like garbage... <laughs> Like, she suffered. She was doing immensely emotionally draining work, and she just wasn't supported. So even if you want to say, like, well, he was mean to everyone, she was doing, like, she was playing an abused person. Right. And she was sobbing for 16 hours a day. She needed support. She was playing an abused person, but, like, he pushed her and abused her to get her experience unauthentic. Like, blah, blah, blah. So she was abused. Oh, my God. And so, like, to me, there's just... I mean, obviously no excuse, but, like, even at multiple levels. Yeah. Even if someone's like, I don't think he did that. Well, he didn't support her either. And, like, I do think he did that. So it's I not, like, I do think he did it. <laughs> but, like, yeah, exactly. I'm like, even if some of it was untrue, which I don't think it is, yeah. he still shouldn't have treated her like that. Yeah. I don't... And that's the thing, like, so many, we've talked about this before, yes. when directors are like, we didn't tell them important things because we want an authentic reaction. And I was like, that's bullshit. You're hiring actors because it's their job to act. And if you were saying that you don't trust them enough to give you an authentic response, then you're then just you saying that have, you... Like, I, I, yeah, exactly. I, I'm not down with that shit. I fucking no. hate it. <laughs> like, 
I can understand it for like little things and like I don't know like there are moments where I'm like I can see that being like a thing blah 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 yeah but I also there are moments where I'm like absolutely not like there's no point like they one of the ones that I was like I can see that being like something okay was um like Stranger Things they knew what was going to happen they knew like what the scene was they knew there was going to be a monster yeah they should know what it looked like yeah that's yep. something that I'm like, okay, that's okay. That's like a surprise. Like yep. that's still insane with like uh, Alien. Yeah. I think she knew what was going to happen, but I think that one might also be a little. The chestburster was like oh, no the one knew. That's wild. No one fucking knew about that. I don't know if the fuck that was about. But when she saw the alien for the first time, oh, okay. yeah. that was the first time she'd seen it yeah. completed. Yeah. I think. So that's something that I'm like, yeah, like that's just kind of like a surprise. Like they got it finished and they were like, here we go. Like she hadn't seen it completed yet. Really interesting. But like with Blair Witch, when they were just like, oh, we purposely just withheld food and we we let them just like walk in the woods and like get genuinely really tired. I get it. Like you want these reactions to seem so real. They can do that. That's what they're. That's what they're there to, to do. do. Yeah. It's, like, I, yeah. it's like so disrespectful. Aside from like it abusive, it's right. also disrespectful to yeah. the craft because like that's what they do they're yeah. actors they're talented they can do this i don't know yeah i knew we were gonna talk about this yeah. and i was like just be ready and i'm still heated and angry i this <gasps> it took a long time to do the research for this because like it wasn't like difficult information to find but it was emotionally taxing oh i'm sure i had to take a lot of breaks <laughs> i well because like obviously we've talked about it many times already that this has been like my favorite horror movie yeah. since i was probably too young like i watched it when i was like too young and i didn't know any of that but I knew I loved the movie. Yeah. And so, like, I loved it, loved it, loved it. And then finding out how she was treated, it sucked. I was like, oh, I didn't know any of that. Because, like, obviously, I yeah. wasn't doing research at, like, 10 years old or 11 years old. You know? I was just like, cool movie. And even if you had, <sighs> the, like, tide of public opinion didn't, like, change exactly. in a lot of ways for a while. So even if you had, like, as a 10-year-old been like, I want to know everything about this right. movie. You wouldn't have found articles sympathetic to default, no. especially if it was after 2016. Yeah. I think that I was, I don't want to say lucky, but, like, I was lucky to get the information that I got about what happened to yeah. her after sympathetic articles did come out yeah because i never had an opinion of her that was like oh i don't know blah 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 like i was always on shelly's side mainly because i got lucky to look it up later but also i should have known you know what i mean like i'm like sucks that i didn't know sooner yeah (sighs) but that's also like the way that it's one of those things (sighs) it's like capitalism is trying to do these things so it's like so you're less likely to find the information because you're not supposed to. Yeah. And I'm not saying it's like Big Brother, like hacking Google. I'm saying that like because the power lies with directors and with like the patriarchy and whiteness. Like hell us these things. No. And it's not in the interest of power dynamics to expose auteurs that have abused people when we're too busy celebrating them. Exactly. And when we have a culture that is separate the art from the artist. Yeah. Awful. Yeah. Oh, so anyway, <laughs> uh, what a fun ride. <laughs> My like just thing yep. is whenever we talk about The Shining and the technical brilliance of it and its place in the horror canon, we can't idolize Kubrick nope. and we can't say that someone else's suffering was ever worth it. Not at all. That's society. Just to make that <laughs> very clear as we go on, because especially now that we're in horror, yeah, I do have a lot of notes Yes, because I... I've There's seen this. the technical skills. The technical skills in this movie are very good. Yeah. And also, 
like, I'm not saying that I believe that Stanley Kubrick was part of the moon landing conspiracy. Oh, my but God. There are, um, I'm not going to say hidden meanings, but I'm going to say that there's, um, for me, at least, like the way that I take some of the technical aspects of it, it, I don't know, puts more meaning into the film for me. Uh-huh. Um, but that's coming from like me. So if I'm going to talk about this, I'm going to talk about what I saw in the movie and like how much I loved it and all this. But I just want to make it very clear that I still think Kubrick's an absolute piece of shit. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. But I do want to still praise the movie yeah. for being a good movie itself. Like, yeah. it's one of those both and things. Like, you, yes. it's hard to hold two truths at the same time. Yes. <laughs> but it is a thing. And I will <laughs> say that, like, um, the things that I love most about this movie are the, is the cinematography and, like, the, the camera movement. The camera movement. Um, so. We'll get into it. I'm just really excited to talk yes. about that part of it. <laughs> um, are you ready? Yeah. Oh, my notes are all over the place. <laughs> In a good way, I think. So I watched this movie again, even though I've seen it a million times. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And like I said before, it's the first movie I got to run by myself when I was learning to be a projectionist on 35 millimeter. It just happened to luck out that way. And it was the cutest and luckiest thing ever. Because I was like, I love this movie. I love this movie. And then they were like, well, that's your first shift. And I was like, ah! <laughs> Very cool. Nice. It was beautiful on 35mm. Okay. So my the first scene we get is the um, really intense uh, aerial view of the car and yeah. driving through the scene. Felt very evil dead. Yeah. Yeah. And it felt, oh, so interesting. So I said the music immediately just gets me. Mm-hmm. Um. And the shot in the beginning is just incredible. Um, I said the uh, aerial shot immediately shows you how isolated they are before you even know what's happening. Uh, It shows you that there's just nothing besides them there. And I love that. Uh, You see like a few cars here and there, like barely though. I think like one or two, you can count like how many they see as they're driving. And obviously it's not the family at this point. It's just Jack driving. Mm -hmm. But still, you're still getting an aerial shot of like, how alone they're going to be yeah. even before you know like if if you had never seen this or read the book or anything you don't know he's driving to a hotel you don't know but then once you do realize i think it puts that aerial shot into perspective later yeah. when you're like oh god <laughs> yeah. because so much of the horror from this movie by the way spoilers here we go so much of the horror from this movie is her not being able to leave yeah and then the idea of trying to leave or even get someone to get to them is impossible yeah and it's because we saw that road in the beginning. Yeah. Sorry. Something bumped our door or something. And I was like, <laughs> ghost. But I think it was another it's guest. probably another, yeah, human. Uh, I had two notes yeah. on this section. One of them was like, I love the aerial tracking shot because it's showing like how small humans are and how inevitable nature is. Yeah. And like nature can be like wind, water, whatever the fuck. Right. But it can also be like um, paranormal power. <laughs> right. So it's like the inevitability of yeah. something bigger than you. And then the other note I had was my imagined dialogue between two camera operators. It's like, babe, get the lens flare in here, quick. <laughs> babe, 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 <laughs> the lens flare. <laughs> the lens flare, babe. <laughs> so those are my notes. I love that. <laughs> um, okay. Um, I also said uh, it's not just one angle, too. Like, it, mm. the aerial shot goes from, like, swooping in and then going up and like it's just this really cool thing of like look how beautiful and also there's nothing here um and like you said the inevitability of like this is so much bigger than you that car is tiny yeah um and then i said i think the music is amazing because it's slow descent into something sinister because it starts Mm. out of like 
uh, almost just like music that you're like, okay, like it's fine. And then it starts this more like punching sound that it's just so scary. I said it's something sinister, which is exactly what this movie is. It's mm-hmm. just watching someone slowly descent into something more sinister yeah. that they don't understand. Um, so I think the music constantly, even from the very beginning, just complements everything that's happening within like the the acting and everything. It's it's great. Um, I'm just going to keep going. I really was like, whenever I do my notes, I'll every now and then I'm like, whatever. But for this one, I was like, I'm taking good ones. <laughs> I did voice to text and I went through and tried to edit them. And Me I was too. Like, oh, so sun jumps. That was for sudden jumps. <laughs> but we got a lot of sun jumps. Here's the fun thing. I didn't really try to fix mine very much. So they're kind of a mess. Um, I also said, okay, it's also funny because the shots are beautiful and they're gorgeous, but because it's so sinister with this music, it just turns into this weird, like, feeling. You're like, this is so pretty, but this music is telling me that it's not anymore. No. What the hell is that? Ghost, I reject you. <laughs> Ghost, stop. Sorry, we're getting, like, genuine banging noises, and I know it's probably just from, like, people next door, but yeah. I'm so on edge. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, ghost. Um, this is why we chose a haunted hotel. This is exactly yeah. why um okay let's see i said they also show the hotel looking so lived in and lovely as he's doing his interview because again this is rolling him into a false sense of security just like it is the audience showing him uh that it's a beautiful place and it's nice here even when he explains what happened to the previous caretaker it's kind of glossed over as a sort of well he couldn't handle it but you seem great like oh you're so good yeah like it's just like the horror in the beginning is glossed over purposefully yeah. with the beautiful aerial shots, the music, and, like, everything has that underlying sense of something sinister. But, like, it's just not told to you up front right away for good reason. It's not supposed to be. Um, and I think that's interesting. <sighs> I'm sorry. My notes are just all over the place. But I'm like, I really just got excited. Like, Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, yeah. boy. <laughs> You sure did. I really got excited. I also said classic blood elevator. We love a blood elevator. Um, I also said Jack Torrance hates his family from the very beginning of this movie. Yes. And I think that that is one thing I don't enjoy, which we talked about this already a little bit. Because in the book, obviously, he's a very caring man who has the same alcohol issues, has the same issue with, like, Danny and dislocating, like, his shoulder. That is still in the book. But in the book, he genuinely, like, gives up alcohol and becomes, like, a loving, caring father yeah. who wants to be better. And he doesn't hate Wendy with no. everything in his, like, He being. fucking hates Wendy. The disdain that he treats her with from the beginning. And I, and I wonder if some of that is just Kubrick being like, I hate her. So, like, it, and it sucks because I'm blaming, like, Nicholson's performance as well. But I'm like, I, I really think that. One, he should have been there for his co-star. I still think that's shitty. But two, Houston, who was dating Jack Nicholson, was like, no one was there for you should have been there for. Yeah. Sorry, I cut you off. (laughs) No, you're right. And and that's like, that pisses me off. And then I also remember that like, one, he's not in the right, but he also was being not treated poorly, but he was not shown any kind of like respect. He was very much like, I don't want to be here either. Um... And I feel like I can feel it too much in his performance. He's pissed from the beginning. Yeah. And I don't know if that's what Kubrick wanted or what, but it is not how the character should have been portrayed. I am not necessarily on Stephen King's side where he hates this movie with all his all of his being. And it's like, this really, is not what I wanted. He puts a lot of energy into hating this movie. He does. And like, I still think it's a great movie. I just don't think that they are the same in any way. Yeah. 
But I still think that even if you are making a movie that is so, so, so different from this book, one thing you should have kept was the descent into losing yourself to yeah. something bigger than you. That's instead of whole... having it be like, I'm going to take it from a 5 to a 10 instead of a 0 to a 10. Exactly. Like, or like a 7 to a 10. It just feels, it feels like we missed something. It doesn't feel as impactful when you don't see someone that is good turn to someone evil. Exactly. Instead, you see someone shitty just become worse. Exactly. And I think that like, it's something that I always kind of like notice, but just kind of let slide because I like like this movie so much. Mm -hmm. But then watching it now with a more critical eye so I could talk about it in depth, I think I was really disappointed in it. Yeah. And it's not Jack Nicholson's fault because I think that that's just how he was told to be. Yeah. Because he treats her like shit the whole time. And he kind of treats his kid like shit the whole time, too. And I'm like, I, I don't understand. He's supposed to become a bad father. He's supposed to become a bad husband. And instead, he just already is one who gets yeah. worse. <laughs> instead, like, Wendy is putting out every, like, she is making so many offers of, like, peace and conversations. Yes. Like, every time she says something, he sees it as this, like, annoying way of her, yes. like, chattering. And for like the way that I'm reading it is like she's offering like a branch. She's yes. like saying, we could discuss this. I'm showing interest in your activities. You could respond. Like every time that she's offering up yes. like community or like friendship or kindness, he's like, oh my God, she's nagging. Even this is what I, I, this is something that I felt that I was like, I never realized I felt this way until watching it with more detail. Um, the parts where she is walking with, the owner or whoever's giving him the Omen. job. Okay. When she's walking with him and they're all walking together, she's making conversation and she's like, so sweet. And she's like, oh, like I'm excited to do this and this. And even though Jack doesn't say anything, the whole time in my head, I'm thinking, oh my God, he must be so annoyed by that. Oh my God, he's probably mad that she said that. Yeah. I wonder. And I hated that. Yeah. I was like, you've, you've trained me as your audience to already assume he hates everything she does. Yeah. That sucks. Because yeah. now I'm like, when he snaps and loses it, I'm like, okay, yeah, that sounds like something he'd do. Like, it's it was a bummer. <laughs> there are so many of these moments, and this is not, like, the biggest one. But right. she, like, he is, like, having a whole day, and he's, like, not getting any writing done. He's, like, oh, right. I'm having a hard time. She's like, oh, you know, it's just about getting back into the habit. Like, you know, like, that's what it is. Yeah. I'm phrasing this so poorly. But, but yeah. She's like, once moment. you get back into the habit, it won't be a problem. And he's like, yeah, that's all it is. Just sitting down and writing. And I was like, actually, it is, though. It is, though. Because, like, in grad school, one of the classes that I had to take to graduate was about writing. And our final paper was my portfolio. So yeah. I was writing 40 pages. And... Our activities were like sit and write for 15 minutes every single day. Yeah. You don't wait for inspiration to strike. You just Writing do it. is a practice. And so like creativity is a muscle. And yeah. so it's like all these things where like we were taught and we read the theory on it and then we practiced it where it's like you do sit down and yeah. just write. You create that habit. And like a first draft is good because it's a first draft. Right. Because it's out there. It's something. Yeah. You just write something. And so, like, I'm mad because, like, I feel like his theory of writing is just fucked. Right. And it's like, she's right. She's right. And I just hated that they made me feel that way about that character yeah. immediately. They made me just assume how he felt about conversations she was having, even though he doesn't say anything when they're on their tour. He doesn't have very much of a reaction. But because I know how this character is already, yeah. re like, responding to her... 
I'm assuming that he's pissed. And like the drive up, he was also really short yes, with her. Which is why I'm like, you've, you've just, you grabbed my hand and you, you walked me where you wanted me to be instead of letting me get there on my own. Yeah. And I just, it feels like they force fed me the wrong conclusion. Like I, I was like, you're supposed to like watch me or let me watch this man become something he isn't. And instead you told me what he is right from the start. Yes. I, yeah. And like, we talked about this and like, this is the first time I've really looked at it like this and I hate it. Like it just sucks. It makes the movie so much less effective and don't get me wrong. Like I still love this movie and I'm going to talk about it, but I like I said, I'm gonna praise it more for its technical things yeah. and for like the set design and the lighting, probably more than I am like the writing of these characters. Like yeah. it's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Um, but I wanted to say that now because I was like, we'll get to the other stuff later. But that's how I felt in the beginning. Yeah. Is it just? It was just a bummer. Yeah. I was like, okay, you're force feeding me something that I don't want, and it's kind of ruined this whole conclusion for me. Yeah. <laughs> but whatever. That was actually one of the biggest like critiques with the Razzie thing. Yes. They were like. You didn't get a descent into madness. He already started pretty fucked up. So thank like, you. Yeah, that's the one thing I will give them. <laughs> They're right. Um, there are a few moments within this like tour thing that I do enjoy, which is mostly them just saying like, "This feels homey," or "I love this," mm. and I love that. And it's specifically locations where the worst things happen. Oh, and I loved that. That's dope. <laughs> um, oh, I also one of my notes is I'll never forgive all the people who gave Shelley Duvall a Razzie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. But I said, Jack Torrance just hates his family from the very beginning. I hate that. And I said, I love this uh, movie. It just made twins a terrifying thing. I swear to God, this movie single-handedly were like, we're going to take twins. The one thing that everyone's like, and twins. And twins. And we're going to make it and twins. And twins. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's great. Um, and twins. And twins. But I love uh, when they go in the bathroom and she goes, it's so homey in here. But that's where he chops through the fucking door to get to her. And that's the yeah. iconic moment of Here's Johnny. And I think it's interesting. I think they knew where these moments were going to happen. I believe, I could be wrong, that this movie was shot in chronological order. It was. Thank you. Uh, and I think that's cool. Not a lot of movies are. I think that's really interesting. I really like when movies are shot in chronological order, especially when it's like revealing something about the human psyche. Yeah. Because like if someone is devolving or growing and coming out of their shell and doing just fine, then <laughs> I do want to see. Like I think that it has such narrative power. I in think terms it's great. Of, like the actors, they get to actually like each day – like, it makes sense scene it to scene. It makes sense. I think that's really cool. I think it's super cool. Chronological order, I think, is interesting. And it's not done... I don't know. I, maybe it's done more than I think. But they I... did that in The Descent. Okay, did they? I love that. Um, there think. is a movie that I have not seen in a long time. I can't remember the name of it. But it's shot um, not only in, like, chronological order, but it's shot in real time. Oh. So, like, the length of the movie is the length of whatever is happening the to... La the house at the end of the lane it's no the one... not that one okay. that's what's her face uh the olsen the not this, twin olsen yes this is okay. i we'll look it up we'll look it up okay um maybe we'll cover it because it's really good um here's what i also said about some of the tracking shots i said they have a lot of great tracking and just following shots i love uh it really gives you a feel of how big and sprawling the kitchen is mm -hmm. so like there's that moment of um her getting the tour from decaloran decaloran and i don't think that it cuts at any point i believe it is just a one oh, shot shit. and it follows them the whole time and it's it's on them the entire time and i think that's so interesting because then it like lets you see what the kitchen feels like and how confusing it is and it also moves things later yeah and so it shows you the path they took and right. then later it shows you a different path it's so interesting yeah and i think it's effective too because like some movies will show you 
like a shot, you know, they'll show you like a straight on shot of the people talking and then they'll go to like another angle. This one gave you one angle so they could be like, we don't ever want you to lose track of where they are in the kitchen. So that way you can get a feel of it just so we can lie to you later. Yes. And that's great because if they had switched the shot, I think it would have confused us too much about yeah. where they were in the kitchen yeah. and it would have made that less effective later. So that's good. Agreed. I think that's super cool. Um, I'm going to look at my notes one more time and scan them and then I'm just going to go wild. I love this. <laughs> um oh this is my one note that i will read because i loved it and they did it a few times the moment where you find out that danny has this shine and that dick halloran has the same thing um while he's like talking to wendy that ominous whistling sound starts and then it fades into some music but still keeps that whistling sound and it helps you separate the conversation that he's having with wendy into the conversation he's having with Danny in his head. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So both can happen at the same time, but it's almost like that whistling sound is a barrier to keep them separated. Ooh, it's like a highway divider. Yes, and yeah. it's so interesting because it's like you can still hear him talking to Wendy and you can hear him obviously more clearly talking to Danny, but because they're happening at the same time, it helps remind you that like he's doing this and like not other people can kind of thing and it's in his head. But that whistle is like a perfect little divide. Mm. Um, and it is music too. Like there is music behind it. But it's the whistle that's consistent through the beginning and end of like the score that's happening. Yeah. Um, there were a few times in this movie where I had to take my headphones off. Mm -hmm. Because like the sounds are abrasive. Yes. And they're supposed to be that way. I'm just very sensitive it to is, sound. Yeah. <laughs> no, there were a few where I was like, oh my gosh. It like thanks. hurts your ears. Yeah. Um, but it's like, like I respect point. it, but I'm not going to do right? it. Right. <laughs> I'm like, good for you. Yep. <laughs> I'm not in it um yeah, yeah yeah uh let's see i'll probably cut this out because i am looking for quite a bit here um so i will just talk about the lights now excellent my egg favorite salad. part egg salad oh, i love egg salad i'm upset that this has become a thing that i say now <laughs> one would think i have control over it i do not <laughs> <laughs> listen i'm not driving <laughs> every time i say it, i was like kate why <laughs> <laughs> i'm broken <laughs> i'm broken <sighs> All right, are you ready? For lights. Gonna rant. I love the lights. I love the lights because this movie is, um, I don't know, it's a horror movie about like ghosts and something being sinister. So mm -hmm. you're going to picture like dark and spooky, but it's not. This movie is well lit the entire time. Yeah. There is so rarely a moment of darkness. I love that. Yeah. The only time I think it is dark is kind of at the end, which makes sense. I mean, you're outside. You're exactly like the darkest moment is the very end and even then it is still brightly lit for the most part you can see his face like there is no and they justify it when he turns the lights on yep. before going outside it's it's incredible and not just that like it's it's this beautiful almost like like warm comforting kind of lighting but also like unnatural bright vibrant colors within mm. the paint on the walls the floors everything which i will get to there's a reason for where that i said ask nikki about this yeah in my notes. i have a i have a really intense theory about all the colors that i think is probably wrong but i don't care i'm no, taking it, it that way yeah um so i love the lighting it's very natural but unnatural in the same way only because it's bouncing off of the colors within the walls and everything mm. so it's like the most natural thing within the hotel is them and then like the unnaturalness comes from what's inside the hotel itself and I think that's represented with the walls and the floor being bright green and like these beautiful colors, mm -hmm. but they're just so intense. There's nothing breaking them up. 
Um, so I love the lighting. I think a well-lit horror movie is one of the scariest things because then it makes you scared of the day. <laughs> yeah, it's that daylight horror thing, mm-hmm. yeah. And that's great. Uh, but here's my theory about the colors that I love so much is that, like, deep, deep reds are used, mm. like, the most, I think. But there's also a ton of beautiful green colors and, like, purples, sort of. And I think it's because the hotel is purposefully alive. And I think we get that more in the book than you do in the movie itself. And then this is kind of a spoiler for people, but in Dr. Sleep, you get it even more. Um, which we are currently watching at this hotel. Yes. We watched some yesterday watching today because we were like, why not? Yeah. Um, but the hotel is supposed to be alive. That is the whole point. Is it something that like Dick Halloran knows that it's something sinister? He's like, this is alive. The hotel has a life of its own. Um, and it feeds on people like Danny and like Dick. Um, and the more people it gets to feed on like that or anybody in general, the more powerful it gets yeah so it's got this like big red rooms these green colors i'm like it's because it's alive it's supposed to be like the lifeblood of this hotel okay, so when okay. you're in that bathroom and it's that bright red but with almost nothing interrupting it there's like not tile it's just red and it just feels like that is like the heart of the hotel or something Ooh. it's supposed to be like a pumping bleeding part of this the toilet's in the heart <laughs> my heart is in my toilet <laughs> <laughs> You need the shitter? It's in the heart. <laughs> and my shitter's in my heart. I hate it. But that's what it is. Yeah. It it just it just felt really alive. I think that's the point. I think yeah. it's supposed to be like there's blood in the hotel. Like when the elevator's open and yeah. his blood pours out, it's because this hotel feeds on people. It eats them. Recycle souls. Yeah, exactly. Like it, it just It's eco-friendly. Because like that blood part doesn't actually happen. It's showing you. Like it's showing Danny. And I don't even think it's showing Danny as much as Danny just knows. Yeah. Like, he doesn't want to, obviously. But it's it's like the hotel is alive and Danny knows it but doesn't understand it. And it's it's terrifying. Can you imagine just, like, if a building just, like, was just alive and knew to, like, destroy you? That sucks. Oh, God. <laughs> That's actually a decom, I think. Uh, smart house <laughs> yeah so there's smart house there's also a short story this is obviously not a decom but um <laughs> it was something that my sister read and it was about this like house where like you could wish things into existence basically oh and then at the end the kids are just like really fucking tired of their parents oh, and no. so they wish lions into the nursery <gasps> and then their parents are eaten oh my god and this is my memory of kelsey telling me about it bleep telling me about it no <laughs> uh but i need to find out what yeah. short story that was we read a lot of really grim short yeah, stories did. freshman year of high school that's when we read the monkey's paw you know oh god and to start a fire and the landlady oh like those god. are just i i keep them in my mind not they're on purpose, always there but they're there god uh interesting yeah i and i think it's a thing that happens in a lot of movies i mean it's not unheard of to yeah. have like i mean you've got like american horror story with like mm. if you die there you live there kind of thing and, yeah but i think this is its own sort of thing where it's not the ghosts that are there that cause these things it's the hotel itself keeping you there because mm-hmm. at the end spoiler he's there forever he's in that photo because he's part of the life that this hotel is creating yeah. like he's like oh look he's always been here because the hotel can just create its own history and create its own life to yeah. make it just keep being able to feed. Like, 
I hate it, but I love yeah. it. That's why I think the colors are so interesting. I'm like always, always here for when the setting is a character. Yes. Like when the landscape or the structure mm-hmm. is not like sentient in the way that we would anticipate, right. but it is a character. Yes. Or it does have motives. Like that to me, huh, it always I, gets me. Always gets me. It always gets me. And I think this one especially because like you do have characters. Like you have Grady as like this bartender kind of character but it's not him. It's the hotel just making this memory of him. It's 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 like so scary and yeah. creepy to me that the hotel was like, what can I do to get this person to basically murder his whole family and then I can feed off that energy? Yeah. And that's just terrifying because it takes these people that aren't people anymore and it's like this person It's like is your the souls hotel. are forfeit. I can play with you like a puppet yep. to lure someone else Like in. that old and woman. When I get him, then I can use his spirit puppet to lure yep. other people in. Exactly. It, it's it's so scary. And that's why I think the colors are significant. I could be wrong, obviously. No, I love this. But I think they're so basic because I think that's the point. Like it's this deep red and like nothing else. Cause it's like this it's like the veins, the blood of like this hotel that's not actually alive. But how do you make a building look alive? You give it colors that seem like body. Like a body, yeah. you know? <laughs> so that's how I felt about it. Those are my notes. I won't go further because I will talk forever. Okay. I love that. Let's hear Uh, yours. (laughs) Okay. So I talked about like the shot from the overhead through the mountains, the lens flare, obviously. Um, And then I'm like, I fold in my notes where some of them are like a thing that I found to be like compelling. And some of them are like, Jack likes the hotel. That's a red flag. I called it a Jack right. flag. Jack flag. <laughs> That's a Jack flag. That's a Jack flag. Yeah. Uh, but then there was one thing, like, you know how in the Colorado room, I think that's where he, like, sets up shop to type? Yes. He sets up his typewriter at this long-ass table. Yes. And when he takes up that space, mm-hmm. the shot includes, like, so much of the room so that you yeah. see him and the context of the room. And so, like, he is taking up so much space, and he is claiming all of that space. Yeah. And the way that Danny and um, Wendy. Wendy, thank you, yeah, I was, I was like, like <laughs> Duval. <laughs> the way that Wendy and Danny take up space is so different. So, like, mm-hmm. the time when he wants to go get his fire engine, and they're watching TV, and mm-hmm. she's like reading or something, and he's playing on the floor. Like, the shot is pretty like close. Like, yeah, where she's on the couch. He's on the floor and they have a TV. And so it's like they have this ginormous fucking hotel. And they said, we'll just take a little corner of it. We're just going to like cozy up, take this place that we need. Right. And make it feel like home. Whereas Jack goes in. He's like, this is my domain. And the way they take up space differently. Wow. Interesting. Not something I like really thought about. But that's so cool to think about. I I got stuck on it. That's so cool. (laughs) Uh, And then I have my son jumps. Oh, right. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Let's see if I had anything else. Sun jumps. I know. I'm like, I guess I could check my nose. It's mostly Jack flags here. So. Yep. 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 And then a lot of troops. All right. Yeah. Um, Mostly I just have some scariest moments. Um, It was hard for me to choose that. It was hard for me to choose. I will say this is not a scariest moment. Um, I just think something that was really interesting is that we have a lot of close-ups. Yeah. Um, and one of my favorite shots is when the camera's like underneath Jack's face when he's in the freezer. Or not freezer, but pantry. Yeah. Because um, I think it's interesting. I was like, how else can you show someone's face when their head, their 
top of their head is against a door. Yeah. And the only way is like, we'll put it underneath. And I That's was shot. curious if they tried other things and they were just like, we're not getting um, the facial expressions we want. Because if they do it to the side, that's just your profile. Yeah. And you're not going to get the full effect. So I, I was just curious if they like huh. found that on accident. Like if he was like, if I lean this way. Um, but it's one of my favorite shots because yeah. it's like you're getting the full range of his emotion and you're watching him like lie to her in real time. You watch him first be like, let me out. I'll do this. Let me out. I'll do this. And then finally you get him lying and just being like, when do you hurt my head so bad? And you're Baby, watching, I think you really hurt me. And you're watching his face just change so fast because first it's just let me out. Just let me out in anger. And then immediately it's like, oh, I'm, I don't feel good. And I'm like, that's terrifying. Yeah. And I think having the camera underneath like that is such an interesting way to do it because like i feel like you could have missed a lot of expression changes and lying yeah. had they put it anywhere else Agreed, so yeah i love that moment yeah. um but scariest moment okay do you have do you know what yours is i think so i have like all three of mine like listed in one spot okay and i was like i'll just choose from that basically yeah <laughs> um yeah i think i know okay Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, do you want to mm-hmm. go first or do you want me to go first i can go if you want okay um so i think my um scariest moment is on the stairs yeah which i hate um <laughs> you know what i mean because yeah. it's like because she was exhausted genuinely scared ha- she had a like her voice was hoarse yeah. her eyes were burning she was dizzy her hands were bloody and it's not just that moment it, it goes from the the beginning of that moment too when she's saying that she wants to leave yeah and he doesn't care at all yeah so it's the whole moment like it's not any quick one it's her starting at the typewriter and him just being like oh you want to go to the hospital and she's like yeah like i really want to go and he's like you like mocking her and he walks so slow and like there's just nowhere for her to go yeah so i think it's that feeling of being chased mixed with that weird fake like calm energy he's trying to bring love light of my life light of my life like that's my favorite line yeah <laughs> even though i hate that scene that's my favorite line yeah. when he's just like wendy because he's finally like enunciating so much and like light of my life and i'm like oh you weird little freak yeah um because like he starts to kind of get into this weird mumbly like way of talking and then all mm-hmm. of a sudden he's just like i know what i want to say and i'm like oh i hate you yeah. um but that moment's the scariest for me because like I think it's genuine. I think it's unfortunate that it is the scariest moment because it's scary because she's genuinely not doing well. And you can, I mean, I'm not going to say you can tell. I think that people probably who don't know everything behind it are like, what an incredible performance. I'm like, no, she's genuinely terrified. Yeah. Um, And I think that much realism makes that moment just absolutely terrifying. One of the moments from the interview that I read that was just like really, really touching and sincere was like, um, they watch that scene mm-hmm. um and wendy starts like she tears up some mm. or it's not wendy oh my god shelly Shelley ball yeah and the person's like hey like why are you crying and she was like because like some women and like some people go through that and that how scary was it like i was scared and i knew that i was physically safe so right. like how scary must it be for other people to go through that god and i was just like you stepped on my heart already. Right. Like, is this it like makes me want to cry. Yeah. And because it, she does such a good job. And yeah. I 
And I refuse to ever give any of the credit to no. him and how he treated her. No. She did a good job. That is yep. an incredible actress. That's like why um, I wanted to share all the like right. incredible stuff about her like career before that. She's because she was talented, talented and people fuck. recognized that talent and dedication. Yeah. And so it's should. not so, like she didn't give a beautiful performance because she was abused. No. She is a talented actor. The trauma is not what created her performance. No. Her performance is what created her performance. She's incredible. Yes. And so I love that moment on the stairs. I think that she just, like, I, I don't know, she sells it in this way of, like, being so sad, yeah. too. Like, she's really just tired, and you can yeah. tell. Everyone's like, oh, she doesn't know how to swing a bat. And I'm like, she's exhausted. Like, She's think about, terrified. Everything she thought she knew has been upended and, and in the last five minutes. This is still someone she loves. So I'm like, picture like someone coming at you that you love with all your heart and like you're you're going to have to hit them with a bat, but like you're not going to swing it full heartedly to hit them because you're just showing them like, I don't want to do this either. Yeah. She's just trying to keep that space. Like exactly. she's trying to create she's that She's just boundary. keeping the distance. Yeah. And that part scares the shit out of me. Yeah. Because it's just like, where's she going to go? Yeah. What's she going to do? No matter what decision she makes, it kind of sucks. Like There are no good options. So yeah, that's mine. What's yours? Sorry. I bored Kate to death. Do you have to yawn? Do you? <laughs> and cough. <laughs> yeah. Uh, my scariest moment mm-hmm. is also like one of my biggest critiques yeah. of the adaptation because I think I've seen this movie like three times yeah. and I saw it and then I read the book and then I saw it again. And then that was years ago. Yeah. And I haven't read the book in a long fucking time, but I remember that Dick Halloran lives in the he book. Does. And it, it's just like normal fucking racism that he yeah. dies in this one because it's like, oh, don't worry. He brought the snow cat. Like, that's all we needed. Good thing he did that. But I, I'm i mad that they killed him oh, in this. Absolutely. And the moment where he's coming in and he is done, like you have his path trying to get to them, <sighs> trying to help them. And he's going through and he's... Being cautious. Yep. And looking. Because he knows that this has happened before. And so you're looking through. And I, while I was watching, was trying to remember where Jack was. Yeah. I was like, can I reverse engineer where I think Jack is? Right. But then I realized that might not even be a good idea because, like, <laughs> alien geometry is all over this. Right. It's like, exactly. The hotel doesn't make sense in terms of the layout. And the layout does change sometimes yeah. from scene to scene. So it's like, I knew that Jack was going to get him. Yeah. I'd seen it twice before, but it still fucking got me. And it was just crushing because you see it's, it goes like right to the spot where a heart would be. And yeah. I'm like, that sucks. Yep. And it was a jump scare, but it was also just like, fuck. Yeah. And it's like this one line of defense that they had to. It's like, one, it sucks that he died because that's racist as fuck. Yeah. But also just like he knew about the hotel. Like yeah. he was willing to, like not willing. He was um able to like warn Danny. Yeah. But like Danny's a child yeah. and... I'm also, like, really not here for the, like, we've talked about this before. Yeah, with, yeah, yeah. Like, Annabelle creation, I think. Oh, fuck. Yeah, it's exactly. Like, oh, of course, the self, like, the black man has to be selfless to save a white family. They do nothing for him, and then he dies yep. to save them. That's fucked up. Absolutely fucked. It's horribly upsetting. Yeah. And I hate it very much. Yeah. Um, It's just, it's upsetting. Because in the book, obviously, he, he like makes it and is like a very big help to this family and like yeah. i i can't remember but i think they're like old friends like after that i, I think yeah. in the book there's like a continued relationship with him i don't know if that could be wrong eh. but for some reason that's what i'm remembering is them being like continued in contact yeah. it's um, been a decade since i, read I know it. me too so i'm yeah. like i should probably read it again but either way it's a genuinely scary moment yeah. and 
a shitty one too. You know what I mean? Like yeah. it's like, oh, yeah. It's hard when the moments that are really genuinely scary are the ones that you like kind of hate the most. Yep. Because but, it's like I cared so much about yeah. that character. Yeah. And you're watching him walk through and you're like, something is going to happen around any corner. And so like that dread is just like so heightened. The dread of this movie is great. Yeah. Even though they fucked it up and ruined the characterization of Jack, I think, in the yeah. very beginning. This dread is still there. Yeah. Because you're still getting Danny and Wendy experiencing it. Yeah. And like his descent is his descent, whatever. Yeah. But it's them that you're like, no. <laughs> so. Yeah. <sighs> Good scariest moments. Thanks. Are you yeah. ready for tropes? Oh, I'm so excited for yes. tropes. <laughs> I'm, oh. Okay. I'm Let's ready. Let's see. I have technically four or five. Okay, Let's okay. See. Okay. So first up, bloody horror. Yes. We've talked about this previously, mm-hmm. and it's about how blood is inherently unsettling because of the association with injury and death, and also body stuff is icky. Right. Uh, so in horror, a puddle of blood, also known as a bloodle. It's not. I made that up. <laughs> Don't quote me. Because <laughs> I lied. <laughs> Ew! Guts! <laughs> Eat it! <laughs> Stop it! <laughs> anyway, a blood hole can be used to build tension and Katie, dread. <laughs> I love you so much that if we walked by a blood hole, I will put my jacket down in the blood hole for you to walk over. Oh my god, thank you. Yeah. My blacket. My blood jacket. <laughs> I was like waiting for it. I was like, I see in your eyes that you're really pleased with yourself. And so I knew that there had to be a punchline. Your like, noise is boiling. <laughs> Blood. Not your Judd. <laughs> when I was writing this, I was like, I could go with Bloodle or Pud. <laughs> I hate it. It's the worst. Anyway. Okay. If you see a puddle of blood, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, it can be used to build tension and dread because you can't find your friend, but there is an alarming quantity of blood mystery it's happened uh but then there's also the scene where the dead bodies are most deaf there along with more blood than could have been contained within them and then you also have haunted buildings uh where you can get blood in on the fun by making inanimate fixtures bleed like walls and paintings and light switches on the fun (laughs) join the potty blood come on in babe the water's fine okay babe you barely touched your blood (laughs) you barely touched your blood (laughs) all hate it yeah i knew what i was doing and i chose this <laughs> um so you can also send down an elevator full of blood yeah so we had several moments of bloody horror where it's like the grady girls when they are yeah. axed uh and you don't see their deaths but you no. do see them dead it's with very blood cool everywhere. yeah they cut between them being alive Rapidly. dead alive dead and it's yeah. like, ah, it's like, like <laughs> oh yeah <laughs> and twins and twins <laughs> oh god damn uh so that's bloody horror yeah and then this is where i got kind of into the weeds so uh, yes. on tvtropes.com or .org oh my god don't come at me tvtropes.org i was bunging. no one cares uh, <laughs> i was like no dodge <laughs> okay okay you missed it but i did just spryly dodge an attack from nikki and i spryly attacked so yeah well okay i'm still up <laughs> uh so <laughs> Uh, TV Tropes is like a community created thing yeah. and so like my understanding of it so far is that people can add what they like what tropes they see in a movie right. um, which sometimes it means that it's not correct like that's not actually the trope right and so one of the things that was listed was burning 
burning the ships. Yeah. I was like, burning boats. Uh, <laughs> uh, so, quote, burning the slash your ship slash boats. Mm-hmm. The figure of speech derives from the legends about conquerors who supposedly, upon landing their army in enemy territory, ordered the invasion fleet to be burnt. Mm-hmm. Most people today have heard this tale about Hernan Cortez doing it during the Spanish conquest of Mexico, but it is in fact centuries older than him. Still a direct quote. The assumed benefit of such an act is that everyone on the team, whether it be an actual army intent on conquest mm-hmm. or any party pursuing a risky undertaking, will show maximum commitment if they know that retreat is impossible. There isn't any use in holding back or playing it safe when there's no exit option to fall back on. Interesting. Desertion okay. or mutiny is futile if there is no hope of escape. Dissenters yeah. are silenced when there are no choices left to argue over. And everyone's best hope of survival lies in cooperating for the common success. Oof. Once the ships are burnt, it's do or die for everyone. Succeed or face death or captivity. Oh. So that's the burning the ships yeah. thing. And so some people were basically saying that like, oh, um, Jack burnt the ships when he sabotaged the radio and sabotaged the snowcat. Yeah. And I'm like, he didn't though because like – Burning your ships, like burning mm-hmm. the ships, is burning your ships, right? And like you're all on the same side. He's not. He's like, burning their ships, right? Like, <laughs> he's fine here. Yeah. I will say though, that moment is very sinister. Yes. One of that was possibly oh, like yeah. one of my scariest moments yeah. is him taking it out so calmly, and then <sighs> he's like, "Go check it out." I yeah love that moment. Yeah. And I could see potentially a read of burning the ships from the perspective of him on the team of the hotel. Yeah. But it's just not strong enough in terms of like what the trope is usually right. portrayed as. Yeah. I Yeah. So I think that it's actually more sinking the lifeboats. That, yeah. That yeah. already sounds more. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so when you sabotage your enemy's method of escape, it's called sinking the lifeboats. Makes more sense. And I don't think that this is like an exact one-to-one, but here's a direct quote for mm-hmm. sinking their lifeboats. Yeah. Quote, after destroying or disabling an opposing vehicle, a particularly ruthless and dishonorable enemy may decide he wants no one to live to tell the tale. He may blast the lifeboats, shoot down an ejection seat or two, blast the escape pods to ions, seal off all exits, etc., Obviously, this is usually a pretty low thing to do, and in real-life wars, may be considered a war crime, especially if the craft in question was a civilian craft. Yeah. (laughs) It generally shows just how evil a villain is and can be a very quick means of making the villain irredeemable in the eyes of the audience, in addition to having the audience cheer louder when the guy who did this finally bites the dust. Right. So to me, like, a lot of the examples of this were, like, like, the opposing force is already beat, but then you also foreclose any escape. Right. But I think that it can also be read as like escape was one of their paths to victory. Right. And you said, no, no, no. Right. You were like, <laughs> I'm going no, to take no. the plugs or whatever. Exactly. Uh, so I think it's more of like it sinking the lifeboats than I a 100% ship. see yeah. that more. Yeah. Because at this point, he is on the side of the hotel. Yes. He's not himself. Like, no. He's not on their team. No. It's not he like he's not going to escape. Like, <laughs> to me, if it was supposed to be sinking the, or burning the boats, it would be him saying, okay, we need to take down the hotel and we all need to be like 100% in on this plan. Right. So we have to prevent our own escape so that we all put in all the effort possible to right. take down the hotel, which is not what he's doing. Not at all. No. <laughs> he is not aligned with Wendy. Not yeah. e- Never. No. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Yes. That was a fun one. So next is Cornered Rattlesnake. Okay. Uh, quote, a weaker character or faction is cornered and forced to fight a seemingly stronger one, becoming unpredictable. And it's nice. not 
it's not the same thing. But I really do think of that meme where the dog is holding the no dog sign that says become ungovernable. So like yes. Wendy Torrance with a baseball bat, become unpredictable. <laughs> he was like, when they zig, you zag. Like, yeah. <laughs> and so it's like her on the staircase because she has not been like we see her, the strength of her character. Right. And, like, throughout the movie where she's like, oh, like, I'm not able to get through on the switchboard, so I'm going to go try the radio, and she knows the questions to ask. Right. Like, she does everything so intelligently and, like, so purposefully. Yeah. And so, like, I don't think that she's a meek character. I they, think she's someone that has less power. so weird because they do describe her as being purposefully meek and subservient to her husband. I always saw her as more putting everything she has before herself yeah. to help Danny. Yeah. Because, so it's like, yeah. I find her to be very strong in yeah. this. Like, I'm not saying this is an amazing portrayal, but, no. but I'm just saying that, like, to me, she seems like such a strong character yeah. because she will do anything for Danny, even if it means, like, doing what she thinks Jack wants yeah. to do. And it's like, I, I guess from, like, the work that I yeah. have done and, like, the education that I have right. done, where it's like, she is very skillfully navigating an unpredictable person yes that is volatile and like she shouldn't have to do that but, but she's she doing is. an incredible job and so like every time that she like explains something away yeah she's navigating her own safety and the safety mm -hmm. of danny and so like i'm not saying that like it was good that she stayed with him after no. he hurt danny like i'm not saying that at right all. but i will say that like throughout what we see of her actions she's a problem solver and uh, she works with what she's got yeah I'll give her that and so she is seemingly weaker and so she's on the stairs and it's like she has a baseball bat and she is not like actually physically cornered but she is cornered pretty right. much because I mean, he is physically stronger and, and at this he point is, he's kind of got the side of this hotel that can do whatever it wants and he also has no qualms with attacking her whereas nope. she is still like i see a person that i used to love right that raised myself like that's a fuck yeah yeah, so to me, like, she is that cornered rattlesnake where you don't know what they're going to do. <laughs> right. And it's dangerous because they become unpredictable and they have yeah. nothing to lose. I love it because you can tell, too, that they don't expect it when she, like, cuts his hand. Yeah. And he's like, oh, fuck. He's like, like pulls his hand away. Like, what the hell? Yeah. And I'm like, yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> How'd you like that? And I'm like, damn, hell, hell yeah, Wendy. Hell yeah. <laughs> yeah. Next that's a good one. Uh, distinction without a difference. Mm -hmm. So I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to bash your fucking brains in. Oh, my God. I, I hate him, but I yeah. love that line. Yeah. Like, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm just going to hurt you a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm just going to, like, hurt you so much that you die. Yeah. Just, like, a little. Yeah. Uh, and so, like, I feel like there's a lot of room to kind of talk about right. the difference. But I think it's intriguing when it's, like, not only, like, oh, I'm not going to hurt you. You won't feel a thing when I kill you. It's going to be so right. peaceful. It's, like, I'm not going to hurt you. I'm going to bash your fucking brain. Yeah. Yeah. So. He's, like, I'm going to hurt you. I'm going to destroy you. Yeah. Yeah. God. It's, like, the, it's not a threat. It's a promise thing. The threat. Yeah. It's a promise. <laughs> My gender identity is a threat. <laughs> I do identify as a threat. Yeah. An omen. <laughs> one of my favorite memes. <laughs> okay. Last trope is yes. alien geometries. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to just quote this because it explains it better than I could. So, quote, a staple of cosmic horror story and of mind screw artworks. Elder gods, old ones, the reality warper, omnipotent, whatever, blah, 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 uh, tend to bend the laws of physics to suit them. Uh, so alien geometries are often depicted as being dangerous to the sanity of normal humans. Mm -hmm. uh, but blah, blah, just looking at this stuff can make it, like, have an unpleasant effect on your mental stability or at least give you a headache. 
uh, more innocuous forms may appear normal. Mm -hmm. Then you realize that it is physically impossible for something this size to fit in that. Or you travel a short distance and find yourself kilometers away. Or you turn left and end up to your right. Yeah. So uh, it's also like sometimes part of a maze where the maze is rearranging itself as you go, like the labyrinth. Um, But in this one, uh, have you read uh, Haunting of Hill House? Yes. Okay. Uh, Good short story. Or novella, I guess. Mm -hmm. It's a novella, yeah. Yeah. Um, But like Hill House is like physically impossible. Like the way that like the angle or like the waist. (laughs) (laughs) Like you just got tired thinking about it. (laughs) I lost steam. Because I realized, as I was saying it, that the angles might not be physically impossible, but, but they are meant to unnerve you because exactly. they're not 90-degree angles. But they right. look like they should be, but actually, like, things curve slowly over time without you realizing it. Oh, so basically, it. like, if it's an alien geometry, it is actually physically impossible. Not right. physically impossible. <laughs> impossible. Uh, and so this happens where, like, the freezer, I think, like, the deep freeze right. changes locations. Yeah. Like, the way that hallways map onto each other and, like, where windows are. Things like, just weren't quite. Right, right. Yeah. Like, yeah. And it's not enough to be like, hold on, I turned left and I'm on the right side of the house. <laughs> but it was enough to be like, wait, did I misremember that? Right. Wait, hold on. I thought and especially I was going... with a location like this, it's massive. Yeah. Like our hotel, our hotel is not that big, but I still am it's like, so confusing. where are we? What are we doing? We like, take so many turns. We have a lot of turns. And then there's another weird set of stairs. Yeah. God. <laughs> But yeah, so that's alien geometries. Interesting. Those I like that. Tropes. Those are good tropes. I really, really liked the rattlesnake one. Yeah. I thought that was super interesting. Because yeah. like, I like giving Wendy the credit she deserves yeah. in this. Not just because I love Shelley Duvall. But I do like that character. Yeah. I find her to be way less weak than I think she's meant to be. Because that was another reason that Stephen King doesn't like this this movie adaptation. Because he's like, oh, they made her weak and subservient and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I don't see her as that weak. I, I, I find her to be pretty uh yeah. pretty strong for the the hand she's been dealt yes. like i'm not saying that like how she got here and blah 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 and like she should have stayed with him i'm not saying any of that i'm just saying that like this situation sucks and what she does with it is very very smart and calculated yeah i think that she's wise <laughs> and I, I like her i like her a lot as a character Samesies. Um, dang those were good so it's time to read the movie i know i mean we've got the classic blood elevator uh-huh but I did have another one. What? Lights of my life. Lights of my life. Light of my life. <laughs> we also have Bloodle. Bloodle. And Jack Flags. Can we do Jack Flags? Yeah, we can. <laughs> I really liked Jack Flags. Okay. I really were there do like lot. Light of My Life and Blood Elevator. Light though. of My Life was good because, like, how many lights of my life? Yeah. But Jack Flags is good because, boy, does he have a lot of Jack Flags. So many Jack Flags. Okay. I know mine. Okay. I mean, yeah. Okay, I'm ready. Are you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, three, two, one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay, I knew that was going to be yours, and like, yeah. you, that's fair. Do you I, go first? I'll start. Yeah. I, I give it five. Um, I'm giving it five based on like a few things, but one is nostalgia, yeah. because like this is one of the first horror movies I ever saw, and the 35 millimeter thing, it means a lot to me. Uh, it's just an important horror film. This was like the one that made me want to like watch more horror movies. Yeah. So it already gets big points for that. And I, it's one of the prettiest horror movies I've mm. ever seen. It's gorgeous. The cinematography is amazing. The lighting's amazing. This was probably also one of the first horror movies that made me appreciate like lights and stuff like that mm. and like pay attention to that more in a genre that I feel like I didn't. 
Oh, are you getting calls? I'm so sorry. It's Moira. <laughs> oh, my God. Uh, but, like, getting calls. Like, getting calls. Uh, <laughs> appreciating things that, like, I probably wouldn't have previously, yeah. especially in horror, because I feel like it just doesn't get the credit that it usually deserves mm-hmm. in things like that. Um, but now, doing this podcast, I've obviously come to learn that, like, a lot of movies that I loved are really pretty and really interesting. Yeah. But this was one of the first ones that made me appreciate that. Yeah. Um, Obviously, my rating has nothing to do with <laughs> Stanley Kubrick and the way that he treated Shelley Duvall. Yeah. That's obviously horrible. And nothing that I say about this movie and how great it is will ever make that okay. Yeah. I just want to make that clear one more time. Yep. <laughs> so, like, yes, this movie is a five, but it's a five for reasons that have nothing to do with that. Yeah. Um, If I was to factor in all of that, it would be, like, a one because fuck that. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. But again, like... I don't want to tell people, like, you can't enjoy things that you once enjoyed yeah. after you learn things. It, it Yeah, that's, it's yeah. hard. <laughs> yeah. If that were the case, we probably wouldn't enjoy anything. We wouldn't get to enjoy anything because so, everything is a product of our society. Exactly. So I still love this movie. Yeah. It's a five. I enjoy watching it. It is one of the few very long movies that I watch and I don't feel like it's long. Because you know me, my ADHD, yeah. it's really hard for me to watch movies. I never had to pause this one. I never do. Nice. I don't have to stop because I'm like, I love it. I know what's going to happen and I'm still like, ooh, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what it is about it, but it just gets me. Yeah. So. Fair, fair, fair. That's what I've given it. A five. Uh, I gave it four jack flags. Yes. Yes. Uh, so four because I really do appreciate the technical aspects. Mm-hmm. Like I think the sound design oh. and like the score that was chosen it's is incredible. And yes, I may have had to take my headphones off, but that's just because I'm a little baby. <laughs> it's because they, they did a good job. It's yeah, effective. Yeah, they did a really good job. <laughs> um i loved the way they did the intro like mm-hmm. i've seen it done in like a fair number of horror films yeah but I, I still find it really effective when done well when yeah. it's not the fourth kind uh, uh and then it, i i was like entertained throughout which is surprising because i also can't sit still i was gonna movies. say this I, is a movie that i wasn't sure yeah i struggle with that um yeah. but there were a few times where it's like I still can't decide how I feel about it. Where it's like you see um, Danny on his like bike and he's yeah. going through. And I love the sound design of the hardwood to the carpet to the right. hardwood to the carpet. Love and I think that the shots are really cool. But I also like you have him do that a few times before anything sinister happens while he's biking. Right. And so you're like waiting. And so I'm of two minds where it's like it feels like it's just a waste of time to show nothing right. happening. But then the other part of me is like it's building tension. Right. Because you, you're you waiting for something to happen. Right. And you're waiting for this like s- simple thing to turn sinister. Mm-hmm. So I'm just like am I impatient? <laughs> right. Yes. It, it's hard to say. Yeah. Um. And then obviously like I get really mad when I think about the filming of this. It's hard uh, not to. <laughs> yeah. And I find it to be a very fascinating movie visually yeah. and sound design wise. Yeah. The story, I'm like, whatever. Right. Like, I think it is a scary story, but I don't think it's an especially unique one. And I don't think that it's a very faithful adaptation. Definitely. Obviously. Uh, so that's why I'm just like of mixed opinions. So it's like I can see the technical brilliance, but then I'm also like, well, it is a product of misogyny. It, it is, is a product of white supremacy. Yeah. And so it's like, then I can't give a five it's for hard. me. <laughs> it's very yeah. hard. Like... Yeah, I think that, like, if I hadn't had so much nostalgia to it, same with, like, how I felt about, like, Gremlins. Like, Gremlins has some fucking issues. Yeah. But because it has such intense nostalgia, it's hard for me to be like, yeah, like, I love it. It's a five 
for pure entertainment. And you're not but, saying like, I think it's fine because I like it. Oh, absolutely it. not. You're saying, no, it's problematic, but also we're going to hold multiple conflicting ideas at right. once. <laughs> and like everything that you said is true. And I'm like, yeah, 100%. So I think my nostalgia pushes it over the yeah. edge. But it, again, still doesn't change anything yeah. we said earlier. Yes. <laughs> I just want to make it clear. We've said it so many times. And I'm like, it's okay to enjoy things even though you are critiquing them. Yeah. You can do both. You can do it's both. hard. But you can do both. Yeah. <laughs> as long as you're willing to do both, especially. Yeah. Like, you just can't ignore it. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Cognitive dissonance is uncomfortable. And that's yeah. when it's important. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. very, very good ratings. I liked all your reasons. Very smart. Thank you. Because, yeah, I, I can understand the especially, like, am I impatient or is this actually building tension? Yeah. It's hard because there are moments even where I'm like, okay, like, what, what's up? Cool. Like, you're doing this for so long. But then there's other parts of me that I'm like, that is really good. Yeah. <laughs> so... All good. I like it. So that's nine total Jack Flags. Yeah. Nine Jack Flags. Love it. That wraps up our discussion of The Shining. We did it. And um, real quick, do you want to do a little quick shout out for our ghosts? Anybody here? Still nobody, guys. Don't worry. (laughs) There hasn't been anyone the entire time. I wish that our Haunted Hotel experience was more of the uh, experience of this episode for you guys. But no. Mm -hmm. um, No ghosts. No No ghosts ghosts. yet. At least not in between our small I'll, twin beds on the luggage rack beds <laughs> i'll give them one last shout out at uh-huh. the end but yeah yeah so far okay let's shout out the patrons so. yes <laughs> let's in a minute though in let me minute. get to it god sorry mm-hmm. if you enjoyed your time with us oh my god <laughs> <so mean. laughs> the venom in my face i'm yeah. so sorry <laughs> <laughs> If you enjoyed your time with us, we would greatly appreciate it if you'd rate and review on Apple Podcasts. That really does help other folks find us. Yeah. Uh, but you can rate and review on any podcatcher, like yeah. whatever app you use. We love it. Apple we love podcasts. reading what you say, and it's super helpful. For some reason, just as the one that yeah. like really helps people find yeah. us in like searches and stuff. Yes. But, you know, we're happy with anything. Even, like I said, word of mouth. Word of mouth's great. If oh, you yeah. just like are like, hey, I have this show that like I think you'd really like to a friend or something, or even just like retweeting stuff on social media. Awesome. Yeah. So. Love Thank that. You. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at mm-hmm. Just Cool With It. And every Wednesday, we'll post the movie for the week with the content warnings, where you can stream it generally. Yep. Um, and yeah, then we'll like have the no context quote and such. But yeah, follow our Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. We are not on Facebook. We're not on Facebook. Don't try to find us there. You won't. You won't. <laughs> or if you do, it's not us. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, check out our extended show notes on our website, JustGoWithItPod.com. Or maybe even take a look at our Patreon Ooh. at Patreon.com slash it. We'd like to take this opportunity to thank our patrons. Kim, Kelly, Neha, Will, Rachel, Kelsey, Sula, Tim, Beth, Kayla, Meg, Katie, Morgan, Brady, Kenny, Janice, and Brian. Woohoo! First take. You did it. I one lied. Ch- one time it took. Uh-huh. That's all. <laughs> a time, one time it took a time. That <laughs> <laughs> is joke. Oh, God. Yeah. The intro and outro music was created by Anthony Rockazella. The cover art is by her very own Nikki Solomon. Kate, I hate to, I hate to tell you this. No. I've been dead the whole time. No! Put the EMF next to me. It went, oh my God, it went crazy. It did nothing. It was one green dot the whole time. <laughs> I even put it next to Nikki's laptop to see if I could trick it into like nope. having, nope. Okay, I have an idea though. Mm-hmm. This is going to be our last hurrah. Yeah. We're going to do this real quick. Okay. And this is how we're going to sign off the episode. Yeah. <gasps> when you changed it, it had two. Okay, I'm going to ask a question. We're going to see what uh-huh. it says. Yeah. Do any ghosts? Want to kiss? They didn't say anything. I'm so embarrassed. I'm turning off. I'm turning it off.
called them? It's the Champers. It's the Champers. 